Oh. I think I get it. Oh, yeah? What do you get? If Ann got freaked out by these, they must be something sexual. Are these tapes of you having sex with these girls? No, not exactly. Well, either you are or you aren't. Which is it? Why don't you let me tape you? Doing what? Talking. About what? From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, though I've promised her no one but me will ever hear these recordings, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as the Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of Steven Soderbergh's feature debut, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which premiered 30 years ago this month. Nakia, what, if anything, do you know about Sex, Lies, and Videotape? Um, I know that it stars the woman that's not Minnie Driver. What's her name? There are like four billion women on the planet who are not Minnie Driver. Right, but she's pretty much everybody except Minnie Driver is not would Minnie fit Driver. That, fit but that you know, category. she has the brunette curly hair thing going. <laughs> okay. Um I feel like that's racist what you're doing right it's now. It's definitely not racist. It's definitely reductive of both of them, but it's not racist. And I assume that it's about... Andy McDowell is yes. who you're referring to. Yes, yeah, okay. Andy McDowell. And I assume that it's about infidelity. I don't know why you assume that. Because it's called Sex, Lies, and Videotape. <laughs> so I don't. there's not a whole lot of things that could be about, really. Could be about... Uh, yeah, you're right. That pretty yeah, much does come exactly. down to infidelity on some level mm-hmm. or another. All right, fair enough. So it does star Andy McDowell and James Spader, as we mentioned last week, mm-hmm. of whom you are a fan. I love James Spader. Especially when he's playing slimy, douchey, coke-headed 80s guy. I think you are very hard on Steph. You know, there were layers to Steph. We we are referring to his role in Pretty in Pink. Yes. Pretty in Pink, which is traditionally considered a choice between the Andrew McCarthy character... With his no chin, have an ...and ass. Ducky, the John Cryer character. Uh-huh. You go the third alternative. <laughs> the the only choice is Steph, is Steph. the evil James Spader character. He evil? He's pretty gross. Steph, yeah. is, Steph is complicated. He's the more interesting of all of them, quite frankly. Okay, and then the other two people in this movie are Peter Gallagher, mm-hmm. whom you refer to as eyebrows, eyebrow guy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not eyebrow guy, just eyebrows. Just eyebrows. Yes. I don't even know what you know him from. I know Peter Gallagher from. <laughs> while oh. you were sleeping oh dear <laughs> i think that may be the only place or and at least the most he does actually spend most of that movie sleeping, in a coma doesn't he? he's yeah. in a coma okay. for a lot of it yeah and then uh laura san giacomo mm-hmm. is the fourth person in this film uh you know her from just shoot me yes okay. very cool sitcom actually yes Okay, so this is the, always the part of the, the conversation where I attempt to justify why you need to be aware of this movie. And 99% of the time you fail to do so. <laughs> By your standards. By anyone's standards who has ever listened to any episode. I've actually given up trying to justify anything because to you. They, I'm really you trying to justify have it no to our listeners. Justification. Our listeners agree with me. 
We don't expect. Okay, you don't know that. Have you, you done a poll? Have you done a survey? You have yes, not. Yes, I've asked both of our listeners, mm-hmm. and they agree with me. Okay, so they're your friends then. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> this movie is considered important. In I actually, I just think it's a good movie. I really like this movie, but it's considered important. I think because it was one of the films that ushered in this sort of independent film renaissance of the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of when I say independent film? Um, typically smaller budget. Okay. Uh, not you know released by a big studio. Yeah. Content wise, do you have any expectations of what makes something an independent film? Um, usually they are, it's almost easier to say like what they're not, right? So it's okay. like not the Avengers, not. <laughs> Wait, are you sure about that? Pretty sure about that. So they tend to be more intimate stories, sort of smaller stories, just based in humanity. They tend to offer more diverse perspectives than what we find in bigger sort of blockbuster films. I think at their worst, you can define them as these are the quirky films. <laughs> and that's where you get things like <laughs> Little Miss Sunshine and Juno. Ooh, yeah, that's... Um, I actually kind of like Juno, but Little Juno's, Miss Sunshine is... Juno's cute. The dark end yeah, of that spectrum um, for me. It's a, it's, it's a little tryhard, but... You also find films like Moonlight or If Bill right. Street Could Talk, which are just right. beautifully, wonderfully done films that are just about people. Okay. I mean, it's it's an interesting question because there seems to be no answer yeah. to it. It is, or at least it has become more and more a bullshit term. Mm-hmm. I think when the studio system was different, I think you could more clearly point to films that were made outside the studio system. Mm-hmm. Now, I think a lot of films we call indie films are made by smaller subdivisions of big studios, of big right. studios, that kind of thing. So it's it gets tricky. I looked at the eligibility for the Independent Spirit Awards, and they they go by a lot of what you just said. This year, I, I'm sure they've increased it every year they've been doing it, but this year the cutoff is a budget of $22.5 million mm-hmm. to be considered for the Independent Spirit Awards. They give a special award for films with a budget under 500000 and that's the real independent film. That's Ooh. the, I mortgaged my car. I got the street cred. Mortgaged my house and sold my car to make this film. And then it says that the nominating committee takes several other factors into account, including diversity, mm-hmm. innovation, uniqueness of vision, provocative subject matter, economy of means, and percentage of financing from independent sources. So... That's a pretty big umbrella of stuff that, I mean, I actually think it's good that it's called the Independent Spirit Awards because it's, the spirit is independent. Being independent. Mm -hmm. There was an article in IndieWire in 2013 that asked the question, does independent film still exist? Uh, They asked a bunch of critics and industry types, and most of them agreed that it's basically become a meaningless term. The consensus seems to be that it's a genre now, not a classification. Mm, Okay. Basically, the studios are only putting big money into spectacle films like the Avengers. Right. So almost by definition, any serious adult film in which stuff doesn't blow up is going to be an independent (laughs) film. 
Well, I imagine also the recent prominence of like a Netflix and that has completely that, that changed the game. Totally change how yeah. we can define. And that is where a lot of those movies are yeah. going now. Is going straight to Netflix or Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's a whole development route that didn't used to exist right. for smaller films. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting in that article. Critic Joey Madison told the story of being on a date with someone who said they don't like independent movies, and he said he asked her what she meant by that, mm-hmm. and she said, "You know, movies with." Actors I don't recognize and sad storylines. <laughs> I think that's a workable definition. Is I guess sure. No, she no. You should not be on a date with that person. <laughs> well, I, I think he said there was no second. Yeah, date, I would but, not have. Yeah, that's yeah. just okay. That's like somebody saying I don't read. It's like all right. Well, we don't really have Books a whole. Without pictures. Yeah, it's just we don't. Yeah. Have, there's not much here. Nonetheless, I think that I think there is sort of a received narrative about Hollywood and independent film that we can talk about for a minute. And this narrative was largely written by Peter Biskind, who we've talked about earlier. We talked about his book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, mm-hmm. which was about the rise of the, the new Hollywood era in the 70s. He wrote a follow up to that book about the independent film movement in the 90s called Down and Dirty Pictures, Miramax, Sundance and the Rise of Independent Film. And just grossly oversimplifying, I mean, I think the narrative is the new Hollywood era was this sort of renaissance, then the blockbusters like Jaws and Star Wars started coming in, and Mm -hmm. that became more important, then the 80s were all shit, (laughs) and then there was another little renaissance of independent film in the 90s. That's Mm -hmm. grossly oversimplifying. We We can work from that sort of starting point. And one of the films that he argues at least ushered in that second renaissance is Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Okay. He calls it the Big Bang of the modern indie film movement. So Soderbergh, this was his first full-length feature. He'd made some shorts. He was 26 years old when he made this movie. Mm -hmm. And he took it to what was then not yet called the Sundance Film Festival. Redford, just continuity from our last episode redford took all the money he made from butch cassidy and the sundance kid bought all this land in utah set up the sundance institute as a lab as a workshop to develop independent film Mm -hmm. he originally didn't even want to have a film festival but then he ended up taking over this struggling film festival the u.s film festival it was called and it did not make a huge splash the film festival had a lot of dull safe socially responsible Mm -hmm. movies but Soderbergh took Sex, Lies, and Videotape to the festival, fully expecting that this film would end up straight to video if it got released at all. Nobody had any expectations for it, including him. But it ended up being a hit at the festival. It won the Audience Award. It generated a lot of buzz. People were excited to see it. Mm -hmm. Now, around the same time, and this is the other important connection here, Bob and Harvey Weinstein had started this fledgling little movie studio called Mm -hmm. Miramax. And at that point, they were not doing much. They were sort of snatching up low-budget sex movies and art movies and sexy art movies and arty (laughs) sex movies and repackaging them and distributing them to make a little profit on them, but they were not the players that they would become yet. Mm -hmm. But they had a good eye for movies and they had a very aggressive, ruthless approach to acquiring them and promoting them. And they bought Sex, Lies, and Videotape, even though everyone thought they were crazy, mm-hmm. that this movie was never going to be anything. And they took it to Cannes, and at Cannes, 
Sex Lies and Videotape won three prizes, including the International Critics Prize, Best Actor for James Spader, and the coveted Palm Door, making Soderbergh the youngest ever winner of the Palm Door. So then Miramax built on that. They marketed the film really aggressively. They marketed it as if it had a lot of sex in it, which it really doesn't. The title is a little Spoiler misleading. Spoiler alert. Uh, they put it, and this is what they became known for, they they advertised it and they put it in theaters where, quote-unquote, art movies never usually played. Mm-hmm. So they, they sort of packaged it like it was a mainstream movie. They put it in theaters like it was a mainstream movie, and they blew it up into a hit mm-hmm. that it never otherwise would have been. That, as much as anything, is how the Weinsteins changed Hollywood. They were very good at doing that. Yeah. Sex, Lies, and Videotape made $24 million domestically. Put that in perspective, that's only a tenth of what the number one movie of that year, which was Batman, made. (laughs) But it's a couple million more than Say Anything made. Mm -hmm. It's about six million more than what is considered Woody Allen's best movie, Crimes and Misdemeanors, which was out that year, made. So it's, you know, for a completely unknown director on a completely no-budget movie, that's it was just hugely profitable. Mm -hmm. And it actually ended up making more than $50 million worldwide. So what that did, I mean, it it put Sundance on the map as the place where completely unknown directors could get their movies seen and bought. And it put Miramax on the map as Mm -hmm. suddenly a player in Hollywood. And for a little while, at least, it created this atmosphere in which everyone was looking for the next Sex, Lies, and Videotape. As Campbell Campbell in The Independent writes, it created a moment where modest, low-to-mid-budget films become commercially viable, even something Hollywood executives might seek to produce rather than counterculture objects. And I think you can trace that to this sort of second wave of independent directors, people like Richard Linklater, Todd Haynes, Quentin Tarantino, who then changed everything again when Mm -hmm. Pulp Fiction was the hit that it became, Ang Lee, Kevin Smith, Wes Anderson, P.T. Anderson, Darren Aronofsky, a lot of these people like that that came in in the 90s. Jim Jarmusch, you're you're a Jarmusch fan. I love Jarmusch, yes. Okay, so that very briefly is is sort of why this movie is theoretically important. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you're going to like, I actually am curious to see, I have no idea what you're going to think of this one. Um, well, I think I like Soderbergh. Okay, what have you seen of Soderbergh? He did, um, was the one with J-Lo. Out of Sight. Out of Sight, really liked Out of Sight. I think that's one of his best movies. Um, the Oceans films. Mm -hmm. I don't know, what else did he make? Uh, let's see. I mean, interestingly, he followed this with five total bombs. Okay. It's amazing that he still had a career. He did what was Kafka and King of the Hill and the underneath, like just this string of just total bombs. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit, he did Magic Mike. Yeah, He did. I, that's what I was going to tell you. <laughs> yes. That's the only film, if people want to go to our site, that's the only film <laughs> review you ever wrote was Magic Mike. Yes. He did Aaron Brockovich, Traffic. Did you see Traffic? I did see Traffic. Okay. I like Traffic. Oh, he did Behind the Candelabra. Oh, Shay, too, which he I think Shea. you like. I do. I really do like Shay. I think you're the person in the world who likes Shay. Is that not liked? I don't think it is. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Yeah, so it's I like tend nine to... nine hours yeah, long. It is. Well, it's a two-parter. I mean, well, it's fucking shape of art. It's going to take some time to tell that story. <laughs> As a director, he's he's had such a weird career. Mm-hmm. And he said... Um, 
I've got a quote from him. He said, I'm not one of those visionary types. I'm sort of in the middle. I want John Huston's career. I want to work for a long time and make all kinds of films. And I think that's the career he's had is that he, it's hard to point to like a signature style mm-hmm. or a particular genre he works in. I mean, Ocean's Eleven is this big glossy right. heist film. Yeah, he's just all over the map. He's Logan Lucky. I think that might have been his last released film, which was sort of this Coen Brothers-esque comedy. Right, yes. And then he announced his retirement, and then I think he's made four more movies since he announced his retirement from making movies. So he's so. like a rapper. <laughs> An interesting analogy for Steven Soderbergh, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> I mean, I think you do have to respect someone that's like, I'm just interested in making different types of films. There's something to be said for someone who just sort of wants to try different things. See, I have... I, I don't think I've reviewed a lot of Soderbergh movies, but mm-hmm. I re- reviewed a couple, and I've been very hard on him. Mm-hmm. In part, I think, because I want to know what happened to the guy who made Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Mm. I feel like I never saw him again. Well, maybe because he'd done it. So maybe he felt like I did that, and I have no interest in But some of these movies he's made are pretty shallow. <laughs> <laughs> like, they... It, they look like, whether they are or not, they seem like they're just work for hire. Mm-hmm. I guess he's one of those guys I look at and I'm like, who is the real Steven Soderbergh? Like, is there a center there? <laughs> or is it just... He could be all those is things. Is just a whore? I don't know. Or he could just be all those things. Maybe. And he's He's got talent, there's no doubt about that, but I think, I mean, when he says, I'm not one of those visionary types, mm-hmm. I guess that's fair, but I sort of look for someone with vision. That's... See, I don't think it has to be either. I think that there is value in both. Like, yes, the visionaries are great. And it's it's Jim Jarmusch, as we mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. he has a very distinct style. But I I also think it's interesting to see someone just sort of play. Hmm. Okay. And they don't all have to be, you know, cinematic masterpieces. But obviously he saw something of value in whatever the script was or whatever the idea was. And that could be interesting. Uh, this is completely random, except that I saw this quote of his, and I knew you would appreciate it. Okay. It make you feel warmly towards him. Okay. At some point, he said, if you go much over two hours, I think you really better have a very good reason. Yes. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. Because that's what you always say. Pretty much. If you can't wrap it up in <laughs> two hours, then what, what the hell are we talking I, about? I think this movie we're watching today clocks in at an hour 40, something that's, like that. That's a, that's a sweet spot. Okay. Unless you're doing The Life of Che Guevara, <laughs> there really isn't any reason to be going over. I would say even then. <laughs> All right, so like I said, I, d- I actually don't know what you're going to make of this. I think you do generally like these kinds of movies. On the other hand, sometimes if it's just about self-involved white people, you get a little mm-hmm. invasion yeah, with yeah, them. So it, it yeah. could really go either way. Yeah, how's Andy? I think she's good in this. Okay. We'll, we will talk. A, we'll talk about Andy afterwards. <laughs> I think this is. Well, I, I think it's easily her best performance. It might be her only good performance. <laughs> All right, so what are you expecting here? Uh, sex lies and videotape. All right. I think we can fulfill that expectation. Great. All right, let's go watch it. I think there are a lot of a lot of women out there that'd be glad to have a young straight male making a pretty good living. Being happy isn't all that great. From the last time I was really happy, I got so fat. doesn't revolve around these little get-togethers. I mean, don't flatter yourself. You know, I, I look around me in this town and I see John and Cynthia and you and I. 
I feel comparatively healthy. How do you like being married? Well, you know the cliche about the security of it. Well, that's true. Are you having an affair? Let me tape you. Doing what? John and Ann don't have sex anymore. Did you make one of these damn videotapes? Yes, I did. Okay, I'm recording. Tell me your name. Ann Bishop Mulaney. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Winner, Best Picture, Best Actor, Cannes Film Festival. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Nakia, I was a sophomore in college when Sex, Lies, and Videotape came out. I actually don't think I saw it in theaters. I probably saw it the way most people saw it on videotape. Mm -hmm. This actually had what was at the time the largest home video release ever for an independent film. Part of the big Miramax push. So I was early 20s when I saw this, which was probably the right time to see this movie, I think. Okay. I mean, to me, watching it again now, it is very much a mid-20s sort of film. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's a young director's film, a young man's film, sort of a cusp of adulthood sort of film. Um, It reminds me of the first novels all of us were trying to write at the time. I think I wrote about three unfinished novels that were thematically, at least, in the ballpark of Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Mm -hmm. And I don't say any of that actually in a disparaging way, because I still think it's a very good movie. I think it's a very good example of that phenomenon. What did you make of Sex, Lies, and Videotape coming to it later? (laughs) Um, I thought it was an interesting film. I think even though you had prepared me, you had sort of managed my expectations for what the film would be about going in and in, in recognizing that, yes, the title is Sex, Lies, and Videotape, but there is very little sex, really. Right. Nonetheless, you were expecting more sex. I was expecting more sex, yeah. but I was pleasantly surprised in that the intimacy of this film is palpable. And mm-hmm. I think... In the same way that, and I can't remember what the film was that we watched, but it was an old black and white film and we were talking about the banter between the two characters and how that was... Double indemnity? Double indemnity. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of that same, it's the conversation that has all the power. Like the actual physical act would be a letdown almost based off of what we just sort of um, experienced. Not not letdown. That's interesting because... It, it also reminded me of the second film we did. It, that was a double feature mm-hmm. that we did that week that we talked about double indemnity. Mm-hmm. We did it with Body Heat. Mm, yes, which and is much more physical. And- it, much more physical, but it also, this film has that sweat yes. element to it. Yes. And you just said it's very palpable. Mm-hmm. It is, it's very tactile. Writing on the Criterion site, critic Amy Taubin talks about this. She says there's barely any nudity and the sex scenes are so elliptically edited that they are more exciting for what we don't see than for what we do. Mm, mm -hmm. And yet, Sex, Lies, and Videotape is something of a skin flick. Soderbergh often frames the two central characters in extremely tight close-ups held long enough for the skin of their faces to become naked indices of their inner lives. They blush, they sweat, we know what their cheeks would feel like if we were to touch them with our fingers as we do with our eyes. I've never seen before or since skin that alive in a movie. Hmm. That's overstating it a little to me, but it's definitely a movie that you watch, especially 
I think Laura San Giacomo. Yeah. It's a very physical performance. But the way Soderbergh does use the camera just tight on everybody, it, it is very tactile. Yeah. Well, and even just in the the spaces. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think we're in Baton Rouge. Yeah. But we don't really see anything of Baton Rouge. No, he probably didn't have budget yeah. for a lot of. Right. But it's also <laughs> it could have also been a choice in that if you are making a film about intimacy, then it makes sense to have it take place mostly in homes. Right, right. Um, there's a little bit of like where, you know, the bar and um, John's office. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, we're in. Yeah, there's only about four yeah. sets in this movie. Yeah. It's most everything happens in Spader's apartment. Yeah. So did you think it was hot? Um, yes and no. Okay. I did think that there was just amazingly intense chemistry. One, James Spader's just... <laughs> we all know that I'm in love with James Spader. Um, Even with the... It's sort of a mullet. It's, it's a, a fair do. It's very mullety. It's a fair faucet do. Um, who's got a fair do. And I love it. But his... He is... This is cliched, but just very quietly intense in this film. <laughs> Ebert said, let me get this quote right. He said, Spader has the kind of sexual ambiguity of the young Brando or Dean. Were they sexually ambiguous? He seems to suggest that if he bypasses the usual sexual approaches, it is because he has something more interesting up or down his sleeve. All right, Ebert. Yeah, it's an interesting character. It's interesting that you you say that like this is a film that resonated with you, or that it, the right time, quote unquote, to sort of see this film is when you're in your like early to mid twenties mm-hmm. and you're still becoming an adult. Because as intriguing and sexy as James Spader's character is, you see him differently now. Than he you is would someone have you date yeah. in your twenties, yeah. and then you look exactly. back in your thirties and your forties, like what the fuck? That was a waste of my fucking time. And it's <laughs> like that was just. And this happens in the film, right? Because right. At, at the end, when Andy McDowell's character sort of turns the tables on him, puts the... Right. He's, throughout the movie, both she and Cynthia, mm-hmm. Laura San Giacomo's character, they refer to him several times as the Zen master. Like, he's this mysterious guy right. who's come in and he's got everybody under his spell. He's the and they're yeah. learning. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then you're right. At the end of the movie... She's like... You're pathetic. But she uses the word pathetic. <laughs> you know, you think that you have created this life that's totally outside of and absent from all the complications and messiness when in, in actuality you are complicated yeah. and messy um, and you need to deal with your shit because it, it spills out on other people. And so I really appreciated that. A couple of times in the film, both James Spader's character and Peter Gallagher's character say of each other, we used to be the same. We're totally yes. different now. Yeah, he says I was a lot like right. John. Spader says. And so we realize that they are they are actually still very similar in that these are two men who have chosen to approach sex in a very controlled manner. Mm, it's under mm-hmm. their terms. It's only how they say, when they say, with whom they say, etc. Now, the difference being that Peter Gallagher's character lies and is a shitball, but... (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to ask you about our level of sympathy for each of these characters. But they are both very controlling in the way that they express intimacy, in a way that isn't healthy. Yeah, there's there's nobody healthy in this movie. There's no healthy relationship, really, in this film. So I thought that that was interesting. All right, let's come back to that, because that sounds like end of conversation. Okay. I think that's where we're we're heading with all of this. Um, But let's talk about each one of these. And I think the plot, we can dispense. Let's not even rehash the plot. It's a really simple plot. Uh, But let's just talk about the characters. So start wherever you would like. I guess that's the question. Is there a protagonist? Mm. 
I mean, I think we're supposed to relate to Anne. Anne, Andy McDowell's character. I think we're supposed to relate to Anne, partially because we are introduced to her in a therapy session. So that is immediately giving us an insight into her experience and it's putting her perspective at the foreground. Yeah, but her perspective is pretty weird. I'm not sure sure how much we relate to it. (laughs) It is a weird perspective. And interestingly, she's not the first character we see. No. She's the first voice we hear. The first character we see is Graham. Yes. Spader's character. Yes. Which actually, that's an interesting point. Because we see Graham come into town. We don't know him. We don't really know his story until later. Mm -hmm. But I guess it would make sense for us to put ourselves in Graham's shoes as the sort of outsider coming into this. Right. He's the new character coming into town. That traditionally would be the kind of the point of view character. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Anne is very prim and proper Southern girl. Mm -hmm. So, excuse me, Southern woman. And she is pent up. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) what 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 do you mean by pent uh she admits that she has not had sex with her husband in a a while Mm -hmm. and that at this point she's sort of repulsed by his touch um and she can't stop thinking about overflowing garbage like everything is just dirty and filthy and she's very like mommy dear is scrubbing the bathroom floor uh in the middle of the night sort of thing are are you sensing some repression i'm sensing a little bit of repression Mm -hmm. so really you related to the character you related to was her therapist and probably (laughs) who's just like bitch you need to get laid and And a lot of white people problems you're bringing in here i prescribe a vibrator and some porn well Um, he asks her if she masturbates and and she does not she laughs yeah. uncomfortably yeah. for a long time it's a giddy little girl reaction like it's the most shocking yeah. question she's ever heard well she basically says i feel like my dead grandfather's watching me <laughs> masturbate which is would kill any mood so <laughs> yeah so that's our it's one of our characters mm-hmm. we'll talk about a little casting here so andy mcdowell her career was over before this movie okay she had been a model first and then she was hired for a tarzan movie i'm sure you have not seen called greystoke the legend of tarzan i've never even heard big budget epic tarzan movie in the early 80s where she was hired to play jane Mm -hmm. despite having never acted despite having a southern accent (laughs) and she's supposed to be playing an english woman yep Somehow, this escaped their notice until she shot the entire movie. (laughs) And then someone realized the fact that she had never acted before and the fact that she had a southern accent was a problem. They redubbed her part. Glenn Close's voice was dubbed in over Andy McDowell's performance. Oh, wow. Through the entire movie, which I don't know what could be more insulting, really. It's like, okay, we want your face, but we're going to have a real actress perform your performance. So her career was over Mm. at this point. She had one other, she had a small part in St. Elmo's Fire, but, you know, basically she was done. Yeah. And Soderbergh said he wrote this part with Elizabeth McGovern in mind. Elizabeth McGovern's agents read it and thought it was pornographic and refused to even show it to Elizabeth (laughs) McGovern. Something probably Elizabeth McGovern got a little angry about later, but it was too late. And Andy McDowell, on the other hand, pretty much they had to beg to get him to see her. But he auditioned her. He thought she was great. And I think she is great. Yeah, no, she's really good in this. Fantastic in this, yeah. We were giving her some shit earlier in the first we half of the episode. Because she's not great in four weddings and a funeral. Um, <laughs> it's just that one line. It's just that one line. And really, let's blame that on the director, shall sure. we? 
Okay, anyway, sorry. No, no. And then we have Cynthia, her sister, mm-hmm. who is the exact opposite to Anne. And even <laughs> they both describe themselves as reactions to each other. They define themselves yes. in those terms. In opposition to each other. Anne says late in the movie, she says... <laughs> I don't like thinking about men, and I don't like thinking about sex, because that reminds me of something that my sister Cynthia would do. And Cynthia is basically just like, I don't want to do anything that Anne would do. So they are both sort of archetypes of women, sort of polar opposites of an archetype of a a particular woman. And they may have one of the most interesting relationships in the film, just seeing them sort of... It's it's really weirdly convincing. We don't get a lot of background. We have no idea why they're so... They're, they're estranged, yeah. but they're close. Yeah. Like sisters, because they're sisters. Right. Yeah. But it, yeah, I think it totally works. Yeah, it does. So Cynthia's the painter, and she's a sort of bohemian, and she works at a bar, and she's very free with her body, and has no problems expressing her sexuality. I, I love the way Anne describes it to Graham. She says, I think she's an extrovert. Yeah. Like, I think she's a drug addict, right. is basically how she's saying yeah. that. I think she's it's the polite extrovert. southern way of saying she's a tramp, and <laughs> I don't approve. So those are our, our women. And mm-hmm. our gentleman, John. Your favorite. Peter Gallagher. John. A.K.A. Eyebrows. <laughs> is a piece of shit. And... <laughs> we first... The, I like the scene where we first meet him. It's very efficient. Mm. He's sitting at his desk in his douchey suspenders, suspenders and yeah. bow tie. And he's just the lawyer asshole. He's spinning his wedding ring yeah. on the desk, just playing with it. Yeah. While talking on the phone to some guy who's apparently getting married right. and explaining how as soon as you get married, the ladies come all, the, calling. all the fillies yeah. come out and start hitting on you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, we, we don't need to know anything else no. about John. He's really. a piece of shit. So yeah, he's yuppie trash. And he is, you know, the quintessential, I have my job, I have my wife and my home, and those are my trophies. And then I have my, you know, mistress on the side. Mm-hmm. So there's not a whole lot of complexity to to John's character. I mean, you don't have a sister, but I'm thinking that if you had a sister mm-hmm. and I dallied with your sister. Dallied? Is that what mm-hmm. they call it these days? Okay. Uh, how would that go for me? I would stab the shit out of you. <laughs> no questions asked. I would, I, I would expect nothing different, yeah. I think. At the point where you have to ask the question... <laughs> Just pack your shit because it doesn't even matter what the answer is. It's there's already something's been broken. Yeah. Fundamentally uh, broken. Yeah. But then once you, you know, learn the truth that he's been sleeping with your sister, then <laughs> we both we cannot exist on the same planet together and one of us has to go. Well, especially if as happens halfway through the movie, you have asked him and you gaslighted him about and it. And you're like, and How dare you, you <laughs> accuse me? I'm the one that should be thinking that you're cheating because you're not having sex with me. And, and she is she's so strong yeah. in the first half of that scene. And she she's breaks. very tough. Yeah. And then he manages to gaslight yeah. her and she's like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I just went crazy. Yeah. And he's yeah. like, How's that therapy going, sweetie? You're a piece of shit. <laughs> so yeah. This is uh this is one of the ways in which people have have framed this movie. Peter Biskind in that book I was talking about earlier 
He says, Coming at the end of the 1980s, Sex, Lies, and Videotape was the first Generation X picture, taking shots at the predatory, suspender-wearing, Reagan-era yuppie, <laughs> played with just the right degree of preening entitlement by Gallagher, in favor of Spader's version of Soderbergh, soft and sensitive, a feminized man racked by the kind of guilt that was obviously a stranger to the freewheeling Oliver Norse of the decade about to be passed. Oh my god. So, yes, Spader is the 90s, mm-hmm. the softer, feminized, feminized sure. male of the 90s mm-hmm. coming in to boot out He's still taping the women. Reagan era yuppies. Talking about sex and then. Yeah, so it's a little more problematic yeah. than that. But okay, sure. <laughs> Okay, John is, I think, the simplest. Yes. There's not a lot to unpack with John. No. Okay, so now Graham. Yes. Who is more complicated. Graham is complicated and yet simple because, (laughs) again, it fundamentally boils down to men are trash. He's just, like, more interesting trash, and it takes you a a little bit longer to realize that he's trash. So Graham is... What the fuck is Graham? This really is just, like, the bad boyfriend. (laughs) So (laughs) we get a little taste of his, like, ethos when he uh, comes to dinner with Anne and John for the first time. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, are you going to find an apartment? (laughs) I love that scene. And he's like, that would mean I need another key. (laughs) It's like, right now I just have the one key. I just have the one key for my car. If I get an apartment, I need a key. And then if I get an apartment, I have to, like, buy stuff. And then I have to get a job, and I'll probably need keys for this job (laughs) if I have to open and close. And so it's basically the the say anything. I don't want to, like, purchase or produce or buy anything. anything (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like that's cute for a minute and then it stops uh-huh. being cute i think the, i think that's the same year as this actually mm. so that's again backlash against this the response 80s, to the, the reagan yuppie materialistic sure. mm-hmm. but i feel like there's a happy medium in there where you pay your bills and <laughs> go grocery shopping but what do i know there's a very small through line of his patheticness running throughout the movie in that every time someone comes to his apartment, he has less to offer them. Yeah. Did you notice that? He runs out of the iced tea pretty quick. <laughs> he's got iced... He's He has iced tea with, with lemon, lemon to start with. Yes. And then it's like, you runs want some iced tea? Lemons. I don't have any lemon. <laughs> then runs out of iced tea, I got water. <laughs> I got water. <laughs> Nothing else. Always in the same black shirt and jeans and mm-hmm. boots. No real furniture. No real furniture. Yeah. Just squatting. Yeah. Doesn't really keep his door locked. People just sort of come in and... So there's just a there's a whole lot of red flags there that you know in the haze of your twenties you don't see, um, right? But now it's like you are not yeah, a grown up. No, you need to make some choices because nobody has time for this. But yes, so Graham is our I guess we can call him sensitive. It's it, it's difficult because he has quote unquote done the work, right? He's done the introspective. Like I'm gonna really take a step back. Well, and has value. he though? Well, he's has said that he has, but he came I mean, out. I'll- Okay, so for, for the listeners, mm-hmm. I assume that anybody listening to this has seen the movie, but let's brief just, what is what is Graham's thing? So I guess he was basically John at some point. Where right, he, he, was, he was a frat boy. He was a frat boy and asshole. he cheated and, 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 you know, used and abused women. Pathological it, liar, he says. Lied a lot. It sounds like he may have had some problems with getting physical mm-hmm. with women, hitting them. Or just oversexed. He says, I tend yeah. to express myself physically. That's true, yes. Right, so yes. whatever. Let's right. assume, he says, he says I was very much like John, so let's right. assume he was kind of like John. And then he, he was damaging people. And, and he had this one girlfriend in particular that he hurt. Yeah, which is always how it goes. And so in response to that, when he ruined that relationship with, I believe her name was Elizabeth, Mm -hmm. he sort of came out on the other side and decided that he wasn't going to engage, or at least maybe his body decided for him. Mm 
and he become he became impotent <laughs> voluntarily, voluntarily impotent. We're, we're not sure it, or his mm-hmm. dick crawled inside of himself and was like mm, I'm not interested in doing that anymore I don't know and we can't be trusted with right, this let's just go inside for a while and instead so he's not gonna have sex anymore right he's going to videotape women talking about sex and sometimes masturbating most times no I think I think he masturbates yeah. no the women I can't oh the women yes I think sometimes the right. women women masturbate yes, on tape. sometimes they do but then yes he uses that as then a tool so to his, get off and I like Cynthia asked him straight up is this how you get off by watching these tapes and he's like yeah yeah that's how he's it, very that's straightforward how he's very honest he's very honest about his, his shit um, which you can appreciate <laughs> but yes so it is again this it's a very controlled intimacy okay so let's talk about what is that like what is the idea here is it that I mean okay so in basic binary terms, mm-hmm. John is sex without intimacy, mm-hmm. and then Graham is intimacy without sex. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what's happening? I think that is, in their simplest terms, yes. I think with Graham, you have to question whether or not what is happening there is intimacy, I think. Oh, ab- no, absolutely. Let's yeah. set that aside for a second, okay. though. I want to understand what it was in Graham's head, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure I completely mm-hmm. understand. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the movie, Anne accuses him of that this whole thing was designed to prove something to Elizabeth, mm-hmm. that he had changed somehow. Like, oh, I'm, let me show you how I've changed and I'm a better person now. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the plan here was. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And she does it. She's like, are you going to show her the tapes and be like, yeah, because that was going to be a not good conversation. I mean, I'm not sure how this represents being a better, better person, person to him because he's listening to women and because, because he's, he's not, not engaging in sex with these women. Um, but... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it could be that he thinks that because he's not engaging in actual intercourse with these women, that it is somehow better that he is taking the time to build quote-unquote intimacy with these women. Except that, Except as, that as Anne says and as you're saying, yeah. it's not. It's not. That's not intimacy. No. It's voyeurism. And again, it is a way of controlling. And, you know, problematic male-female relationships in film come down to a few things, but oftentimes it is the man has, he's only interested in one aspect of who the woman is. Mm-hmm. And all of the sort of other stuff that he would consider quote unquote messy is just like, let's take all of that away. And I'm just interested in this one very specific thing about you. And so interested that I'm going to elevate it and idolize it in a way that is obsessive and unhealthy. And so I think with Graham, he's not actually getting to know these women as in the totality of themselves. He's getting to know a very specific thing that he's interested mm-hmm. in their sexual mm-hmm. history and their sort of predilections. So can you be intimate with someone when you're only interested in one aspect of who they are? Right. And I would argue that you can't. And and the reason that you focus on that is because you find the other stuff messy and complicated and you don't want to deal with it. Right. So. Yeah, it's just artificial. It's artificial. It's right. And I think there's a whole question here, and I don't think we are going to get into it, but I think whether this film is a metaphor for mm-hmm. film, mm-hmm. for how movie makers and movie watchers relate to the people in movies Mm -hmm. and actresses in movies and all of that. I think that layer is there. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not, we don't necessarily have to talk about it, but. I mean, definitely. I mean, I think that there are a couple layers to it, right? Like, as we mentioned earlier, if we are, if we put ourselves in the point of view of Graham, that takes the traditional love triangle and adds another angle to it. It's a, it's a love rhombus. A love rhombus, <laughs> a love square. But he is very much on the peripheral and observing. Mm-hmm. And so we know Anne and Cynthia and John filtered through Graham. And the act of observing. And the act of observing of that engagement. Ooh, I like that. Because she says, you've had an effect on me. Right. At the end. She says, I'm leaving my husband. Maybe I would have anyway. But the fact of the matter is I'm doing it now. Right. Because of you. Right. And he says, that wasn't supposed to happen. Like, right. I designed my whole life. Right. So I wouldn't have To observe have any- and not right. interact. Right. So then you add on top of that the layer of his videotapes, which adds this this another sort of layer of remove mm-hmm. and, and voyeurism to it within the film. And then you back out again. And then we are voyeurs as film watchers. I do think that there is some sort of statement happening there about what it means to observe versus participate. So it's like the sort of like the observer effect in, in physics, right? It's just like the, the very act of observing something inherently changes it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because really they have, I mean, they, God knows they all have problems, mm-hmm. the other three, but they're pretty banal, ordinary problems, mm-hmm. normal infidelity, etc. Right. He's the X factor mm-hmm. entered into this equation Yeah, that, that changes everything. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so let's talk about their, their various interactions with him. Okay. So, Anne, he and Anne are hanging out as friends, sort of. Sure. And then when she finds out about the whole videotape thing, she freaks the fuck out because mm-hmm. sex just makes her uncomfortable. It's also a weird thing to be doing, but yeah. Runs, well, it, I mean, it is, yeah. yes. So if you discovered that was my personal project that I'd been working on when we met, mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't have stuck around? No, I would not have. That's that's again get a as we get older, we don't have time for fuck shit. So <laughs> personal project. It's just if you see fuck shit going on, personal. He says, yeah, nope, no. Okay, and then the fact that Anne ran screaming from his house lures Cynthia. Cynthia finds that because that's, very attractive. Yeah, she is now yes determined mm-hmm. to go meet this guy, and she does. And she strolls right on in. And she's there about two and a half minutes or so before he says, why don't you let me, like, he hasn't asked Anne that. No. But instantly he recognizes, yeah, she, Cynthia's probably game for this. Yes. And says, why don't you let me videotape you? And she says, okay, basically. (laughs) And that's a great scene for uh, Laura because... She tells the story of, I think he asks her what was her first sort of sexual experience. Mm-hmm. And she tells the story of when she was eight and this little boy was like, can I watch you pee? Mm-hmm. And she's like, only if I can watch you pee. And this idea of innocent curiosity mm-hmm. becoming something. Voyeurism again. Voyeurism again, becoming somehow tainted and tawdry. But it speaks to a curiosity on her part that seems to have just continued as she's gotten older she talks about the first time she saw a penis and how for a moment she forgot there was a dude attached to it. It was just because mm-hmm. she was just so fascinated by the organ itself. Yeah. And again, there's something sort of innocent about that, but you see how it shows up in her later life of just like, I'm just going to experience as much as I can experience because mm-hmm. I'm just interested. Well, I mean, it's actually, the, it's an interesting factor to this movie. I think that sex is not pathologized. No. Even Graham, yeah. who I think we would agree is the, the least... Yeah. Well, I can't say he's the least healthy, but it's the least 
trying to avoid the word normal. It's <laughs> mainstream. It's the least mainstream yes. form of sexuality. Mm-hmm. But it's not, there's no sex shaming there's in no the movie, I think. There's no judgment really in this There's no judgment, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Soderbergh is very empathetic towards all of these mm-hmm. characters, which actually makes sense because he has said that they're all him. People mm-hmm. assume that Spader is him. And in fact, Spader said there were many days when he would come out of wardrobe and he and Soderbergh would be wearing the exact same clothes. <laughs> <laughs> But he has said at he has said at times I was all four of these characters. Mm, mm-hmm. But yeah, so she has the healthier sexuality. Sure, Cynthia does. Mm-hmm. I mean, Anne, as you said, is repressed. Yes. So I find it interesting. Both of them end up making a tape for Graham. Mm-hmm. John's reaction to their doing that is very different. Mm-hmm. He's a little surprised that Cynthia did it. Yeah. But he's not offended. He's not angry that Cynthia did it. Right. But he loses his shit when he finds out that Anne did it. Right. Because he's a basic bitch and <laughs> he views those women as Madonna and whore. Mm-hmm. And so it's fine if whore goes and makes a tape. It is not fine if Madonna goes and make, it makes a tape. So one, you've just sort of sullied his prize. Right. And then two, there's also just the ego of it, which is she won't even fuck me, but she'll go and talk about sex with you mm-hmm. on a tape. Mm-hmm. So that was a basic bitch ass response. And I think he's more surprised while watching Anne's response because... He doesn't even watch Cynthia's. He, no. he, go, he breaks into Graham's apartment, he yeah. picks up both tapes. And watches Anne. But he doesn't care about Cynthia's. Yeah. Um, because it shows him a woman that he obviously had not known, or at least hadn't seen in a very long... Hadn't known in a right. very long time. Right, right. And I think that that was a really a deep insult to him. And he responds the way trash-ass dudes respond, which is to go and be like, I fucked your girlfriend, too. Um, so, whatever. But the interesting thing about that tape is that what he sees is Anne and Graham engaged in this very intimate conversation and back and forth that starts out about her feelings and desires around sex, but then quickly turns into this sort of interrogation of Graham and like, mm-hmm. why are you doing this and what do you hope to get out of this? And Yeah, sort of a li- just a little ways into it, mm-hmm. she kind of seems to realize like, this is stupid. Yeah. Why? Are you-? And then makes it an actual conversation, mm-hmm. turns it into actual intimacy because that right. now they are actually... Right. Having an exchange. Right. And it's interesting to think about... And he resists that. He, yes. Oh, like no, because... basically crawls into the corner yeah. like, no, no. Because you've taken control away yeah. and he can't, he doesn't know how to function in an actual gym. He says, I don't find flipping the table yeah. very interesting. No. <laughs> what is interesting, and again, this gets back to the idea that it is Anne and Cynthia that are the more interesting people in this film, is how they both use that experience with Graham to get what they need. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Cynthia has that, does her film with him and then goes home and basically calls John and is just like, I need a dick in my body right now because (laughs) I've just had this really, you know, beautiful, emotional, what she felt was an intimate encounter. But, you know, Graham cannot. Right. Serve that role. (laughs) But it turned me on. It turned me on. So, John, you need to come and do that for me. And then it's immediately like, okay, you can go. Like, I got what I needed out of that. You can go. And I think it became this moment of her recognizing that she could have more. 
that she didn't right. need to. Yeah, I think that's the yeah. last time she yeah. sleeps with him, right? She, she breaks up yeah. with him after She's that. She's like, it's just not like, there's no, like, why right. am I screwing you? Why am because I the talk you? is what turned right. her on, right. and that's you're not going to get that from right. John. John and is there for a transaction, to. right? And, and I think actually that when they break up, he says that. Yeah, he's like, well, maybe I want to talk, and she's like, we, we don't have, have nothing, nothing to, to say about. to each other, John. No, and then with Anne in reversing the roles with Graham, she is able to gain an assertiveness and a, or regain, I should say, an assertiveness and a strength and a desire mm-hmm. that she hadn't had for a very long time. So, you know, in the sense, both Cynthia and Anne have sort of used the dysfunctions of these men to find themselves, to, this is really corny, find themselves again or... or, or To fix their lives. Fix their lives, right. And then realize that like, okay, and now we don't really need you. Except Anne, I guess, stays with Graham. I guess they have like a relationship or something. Well, that, I think that's ambiguous. Question. Yeah, but yeah. And actually to fix their relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. They're on good, better terms than yeah. they've ever been at the end of the movie. Yeah. John is out completely. Right. John is irredeemable, mm-hmm. clearly, and about to get fired because he kept canceling meetings to go sleep with right. Cynthia. Right. And then, yeah, like you say, at the very end, Anne and Graham seem to be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Whether they live happily ever after is, a is probably yeah. a question. Yeah. He needs serious therapy, but yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I think we covered a lot of this. Are there any particular scenes you want to discuss? Would you like to discuss John's very romantic sexual scene setting? What are you referring to? When he put a fucking potted plant on his dick? (laughs) That's not sexy. Not sexy at all. He's stretched out on the bed. What's that? Is it a book? Like, where the green fern grows or something? What is it? Uh, Yeah, no, he's not. With a potted plant on his crotch. Yeah, because that's super That he makes, like, wiggle when she comes in. I I wish there was... You guys need help. (laughs) Because it's much simpler. Like, you just don't... We don't need you to do parlor tricks with your penis. Just talk. Be normal. Don't be weird. Well, that was Graham's approach. So it's, Graham was it was the, a bad approach. <laughs> she is very hot, though. She is. I like the sound design in this movie is mm. tremendous. Mm-hmm. And that scene, like you said, there's no explicit sex in the movie. Mm-hmm. But she climbs on top of him, and I think we're on her face. We don't see their bodies or anything. But you hear her hike up that leather mm-hmm. skirt and just the creakiness yeah. of that leather hiking up. It's, it's very nicely done. Yeah. There's also a scene when it's right after Anne, she's vacuuming the bedroom and she vacuums up Cynthia's earring. Yes. And she has a a freak out moment and she storms out of the house and she gets in the car and there's sound like you hear the outdoors because she's walking outdoors and Mm -hmm. she's getting into the car. But then she gets into the car and she puts her hands over her ears and all of the sound in the film cuts out. And it's a really interesting choice. And it almost feels a little bit out of place in the film because it's it's almost this very stylized sort of hype. It's a little moment. This is where sometimes I think this is it's very obviously a first Mm -hmm. film. It's very obviously a young man's film. Because that scene also, went, right when she does that, it cuts to... She's at... She's suddenly at Graham's, Graham's house. house. We haven't right. seen her drive. Right. It's just a... And again, it's one of those things, like, I'm sure that also saved Soderbergh some money yeah. in shooting this, but it's also just a little film school Yeah. Well, and it's the only scene, I think, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it does... It is... It becomes this sort of moment that sticks out, that it is an intriguing show of technique and style, but is it also feels sort of out of place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because of that. 
you want to talk about any of the performances? Mm. I think everybody's good. Yeah. For the most part, I mean, Gallagher doesn't have a whole lot to do. No, um, but he's but convincingly he's smarmy. Yeah, he's a convincing asshole. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think Andy McDowell is great. You know, James Spader. That could have easily been a really creepy role. Like, it could have been... Mm. It is a it is no, a creepy it is role. creepy, but not in a again. He's able to. Well, you kept using the word innocence, and he right. does have some sort he, of there's innocence, an innocence to about him. it that it takes you a little bit longer to be like, oh, this is actually really inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, um, whereas I think in someone else's hands, it may have just been like they wouldn't have been able to get to that right that layer of it. Like it just would have been creepy. What exactly is it about Spader for me? Because I mean, I'm thinking about secretary Mm. which is a sort of a similar kind of role and relationship to the woman in that movie it's like he's got this weird sexuality Mm -hmm. but it's this sort of isolationist Mm -hmm. no one can come into my world and very controlled i'm right yes i've set up this game Mm -hmm. where this is how i deal with sexuality and no one can yeah intrude on that there's just something about spader that somehow makes him natural for those <laughs> skewed sexuality yeah. roles. Yeah. And I wonder if anyone's ever asked him about it. I mean, it could just be revealing of something in him. Yeah. I mean, I think it's because I think part of it is his looks. He looked like the preppy, yuppie sort of asshole guy. Sure. But there was always in all those characters this undercurrent of like sensitivity, soulfulness, soulfulness. and then underneath that was, <laughs> I'm also going to spank you in the bed. <laughs> uh, so he just, and I don't know why there's something inherent in him mm-hmm. that is, and I don't know if it's chicken and egg, like he got those roles and so now that's how we see him, or someone saw right. him and said, I see all these things in you and you'd be really good for those roles. Um but there's just something about how, in a way that it, I think it would be difficult to get that out of someone who was more straightforwardly pretty boy in the, in, in, mm-hmm. because Spader was attractive mm-hmm. at that time, but he wasn't necessarily like smoking hot leading man guy. Right. So I think it, there's just like, but yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think if he ever had like a real romantic yeah. lead. He probably did, but I can't think. He, he wasn't going to be the guy she ends up with in Pretty right, Pink. He was right. never going to play that character. Right. 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 There's just something a little bit transgressive about him. Mm-hmm. He, he he just has a weird energy about him. Okay, that's enough. You can stop talking about him now. <laughs> now I'm starting to feel a little threatened by the way you're talking about him and sort of gazing off but into the middle distance as you talk you about him. Take, that's good. No, we're good on that topic. You should take solace in the fact that it's a very specific spader. It's not today's spader. <laughs> it is pretty in pink through, I guess, this film is my spader sweet spot. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then after that, it's... it's well, no, secretary's later than oh, this. Oh, well, okay, then secretary. Yeah. Okay, then. so we're done talking about that. <laughs> Okay, so normally I read a bunch of laudatory reviews about the movie. I won't do that. They're there. People really liked this movie. I will read, however, the filmmaker's opinion on this movie. Mm -hmm. He has called it a modest piece with modest aspirations that happen to be what people wanted to see in a way I obviously haven't been able to duplicate since. Okay. (laughs) And he also has said, when I look at it now, it looks like something made by someone who wants to think he's deep, but really isn't. To me, the fact that it got the response it did was only indicative of the fact that there was so little else for people to latch onto out there. (laughs) So I think probably he's just a modest guy and he was, you know, self-deprecating, which I understand that. Yes. 
I also think is a little bit of that bitterness of, you know, I said earlier, I've been waiting for this Steven Soderbergh to come back Mm -hmm. ever since this movie came out. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably not alone in that. And it pisses him off a little bit. (laughs) And then I think that's a part of that is that honest recognition that, yes, this is a first movie and it's, you know, a little pretentious and a little that sort of 20 something full of myself obsessing about relationships Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Uh, But I thought that was interesting. The other thing I was going to tell you, and I don't know if this will affect your verdict on this movie, is that the year that Sex Lives Videotape won three prizes at Cannes, including the Palm Door, also in competition was, of course, Do the Right Thing. Of course. Which got nothing. Mm-hmm. And Spike Lee has said that Wim Wenders, the German film director uh, who was chairing the jury that year at Cannes, had reportedly said that Do the Right Thing had no heroes in it. Hmm. And that's why it didn't win. Who were the heroes in this? That's what Spike said. <laughs> Spike Lee said, what's so fucking heroic about no. videotaping right. women? What he meant to say was that I can identify with white characters. Yeah, I can't identify with black characters. Mm-hmm. What Peter Biskin says is the triumph of sex lies in videotape overdo the right thing, ratified the turn away from the angry topical strain of the indie movement towards the milder aesthetic of the slacker era. I think that's insulting to both of them. Yeah, it is a little bit. Yeah. I mean, yes, if it's like... There's no doubt to me that Do the Right Thing, I think artistically and just cultural impacts, is a better film. Mm-hmm. And that's not to diminish what is, you know, interesting and great about Sex, Lies, and Videotape, yeah. but it's just like, it's not. No. Right. I agree with that. There's no competition there. I'm sorry. This is a good movie, though. Yes, it is. And I was surprised. I don't think it's that dated. I think no. except for the mullet. <laughs> Faradu. It's, it's, uh, it's to me, a it's a little more mullet than it is Faradu-y. <laughs> Gallagher's suspenders and the fact that Graham rents an apartment for $400. Which, bitch. Oh, my God. But other than that, I think it feels pretty modern. Yeah. And the videotapes, obviously. But, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now you'd be, like, on the cloud and then you really I know. This was was pre-internet. Yeah. They, when, after Cynthia makes her... Because Cynthia masturbates on tape yeah. for him. And she's like, what are you going to do with like, it? Yeah. It's weird not to hear them say, that'll be on the internet. Yeah. That'll be on Pornhub, you know, tonight. Yeah. Revenge porn. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah. No, no. It, I think it's a very modern story. Modern ideas. I don't know that I would ever need to watch it again. No? Which I'm not sure why I feel that way. And maybe I will at some point. But I, I, think, I think if you came across it on cable, you would maybe, sit down and watch it. Maybe. But, like, so, would Do the Right Thing, like, I will watch mm-hmm. Do the Right Thing. So... Yeah. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Nakia, good news. Your favorite time of year has come around once again. Mm-hmm. It is time for the Unenthusiastic Critics' annual <laughs> Halloween movie marathon. What was it? I mean, it's our second annual on the podcast. Okay. It's like our eighth annual, if we're counting the blog, except we didn't do it every year on the blog. Mm-hmm. So it's the annual mm-hmm. Halloween movie marathon. That'll look good on a t-shirt. <laughs> How have we not run out of... Halloween films. We have not even begun to scratch the list of horror movies you haven't seen. And the best part is, they keep making new ones. So I don't think we're ever going to run out. 
Okay. I don't want to do this again, <laughs> but I know that I don't have a vote, so. Well, you have a vote. Well, no, I, I don't. It, do- it doesn't. It doesn't count, so that's basically, <laughs> I don't have a vote. <laughs> so the votes are in. Every week in October, on five consecutive Thursdays, we'll be sitting down for at least one horror classic. And next week, we're starting with an essential double feature. No, we definitely said no more double features. We never agreed to that. And this is a short, interrelated, essential double feature. We're going to be watching James Whale's original Frankenstein from 1931 and Bride of Frankenstein from 1935. Okay. Both of which I think you'll admit you really need to see. I don't, but okay. Sure. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can subscribe to the podcast, download earlier episodes, find our contact and social media links, or make a donation to support our work. As always, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show, or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch. You want to talk about sex? I don't like to talk about sex. Ooh, that was a hate crime. What the hell was that? Was that was my southern accent. Seriously? I think it was. Is that what that was? I think it was. Do you want to try it again? I don't think so. It was so bad that I will edit it out if you want to take another take on it. No, I'm, I stand by it. Okay. Yeah. That might have been a worse line reading than Andy McDowell's at the end of Four no. Weddings at a Funeral. Let's say that I was going for Southern. I'm trying to be Southern, but also unintelligible and like weird. And it's a choice. It's an artistic choice. So sort of like a uh, like a Jodie Foster in Nell, Nell kind sort of, of thing. tree in the wind sort of thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, it was a choice that I made. Sure, we could say that, I or we could it. just say you can't do accents. I am excellent. You at try accents. to do accents all the time, I'm and you can't superb. do accents. It's Basically, like I, I am wasted in my current career. I should be a voiceover artist or, you know, animated character or something because. Well, you, you basically are here, except you're not that animated. Okay.